Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the best health tech stories of the week every week. I'm Hugh, and today I'm joined by Jessica and James, both from the Somex team. Jessica, James, how have your weeks been? What have you been thinking about? Very well, thank you, Hugh. Just come back from a, a walking meeting uh, at Somex. Uh, a few of the team were talking about a lack of exercise. So in true innovative Somex fashion, it's uh, see a problem and then contribute a solution. So um, yeah, it was let's do our Friday meetings outside then. Let's get everyone on the go. And it was 80% of people walking and 20% of people not walking. So I think... Those were good numbers. So uh, yeah, endorphins are flying, feeling good. What have I been thinking about this week? Well, I guess the the post I put out this week was actually from last week's Health Tech Pigeon, where we talked about, we were talking about investment. We were talking, it was about a story about would you invest 10 grand in digital health if you had it? And, you know, it was the the conversation that we had after that. But the post that I did sort of blew up a bit. It it sort of, yeah, it's quite a lot of people that saw it on LinkedIn and messaged me and a lot of comments and, all that sort of stuff. And I think it was a little bit misconstrued, I think, that people thought I was sort of bashing the VC model. And it's it's like, no, I'm not bashing the VC model at all. In fact, the VC model is incredibly effective when it's effective. And the ability to put lots of capital behind something, arguably to get product market fit quicker, I suppose, perhaps, but if there is product market fit to then absolutely load that with capital to then get scale... It's a great model. My question, and I guess the point I was raising was when you do that for health tech companies and you do that for digital health companies that don't require necessarily huge amounts of R&D and things like that, you're then in this all or nothing scenario of needing huge scale in order to support that VC model. And so it was more, I was more talking about like, can we think of this whole system and think, well, where is it best to put that sort of funding rather than what we're doing now, which it seems to be the default that everyone wants that funding. And so it was trying to get people to think about that, I guess. And it was, it was me just sort of musing on, I wonder if there's another way. I wonder if there's a way, because ultimately that, you know, the VCs, they want, they want only the VC backable companies to go to them, the people that will and want to get that sort of scale. And so, sort of helping them at the end of the day by showing that, you know, people that want to build smaller businesses for more local geographies should think about funding differently. They don't have to necessarily go, well, I need to raise VC money and then, oh God, I need to scale everywhere. It's like, you don't have to do that. There are other ways of doing it potentially. But yeah, a lot of reflections on that and seeing the comments through and getting involved in conversations with people and actually a bit of learning of like other funding mechanisms that do actually exist. And a lot of VCs actually that have got evergreen funds to sort of somewhat protect against this rushed scale mentality. Yes, they still want and need the scale at some point, but actually by contributing a positive solution to a local geography, well, what then stops you scaling? That was something that came up, which I thought was interesting. Um, and that capital is then behind those people to achieve it. And the evergreen funds, i.e., the VC funds that don't need payback after 10 years are more set up for that. I know likes of Octopus Ventures and others have those sort of more evergreen style funds for health tech investments. So yeah, there's a lot of reflections, a lot of stuff going on, but um, yeah, that's, I guess, what I've been thinking about and can continue to be thinking about this week. That's a really interesting point. I, I wonder how did the, those evergreen funds work? Is that just a kind of recognition that Health is a longer play than other sectors, and 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 these VCs are 
of understanding and leaning into that or is there another model correct correct that that literally is it so the idea is the normal vc model is that vcs go out and raise a load of investment say 100 million from super rich individuals large companies all that sort of stuff it's a very high risk asset class vc so people allocate a, normally a small amount of capital if they're you know very high net worth individuals or you know corporates with an investment strategy they'll allocate a small percentage of their capital which is actually my point around you know asking a person at our level would you invest 10k in digital health that's the wrong question would you invest 100 pounds that's more the equivalent um so for those people they then invest into that VC fund that's then managed by the VC firm. But normally it's on a 10 year clock, sometimes 15 years, sometimes differently. But the idea being that those LPs, the people that invest in VC funds after 10 years will get the number. So the number that has been managed to be achieved in the 10 year period. So all those companies that got invested in, in years one, two, three, four, selling all their shares towards the end, you know, hopefully getting, you know, acquisitions and IPOs and exits and all the rest of it. A lot of them, most of them are obviously going to disappear and the rest of it. But then at the 10 year period, yeah, those, L, those investors in the VC fund, the LPs, then get first their money back. And then normally about 80% of the profit of the fund. So 80% of that profit will go to the people that invested and then 20% of the profit of the fund would then go to the people managing it, i.e. the VC firm, the GPs, the general partners. What an evergreen fund does is it says, well, we're actually not going to stick to that 10-year clock. We're going to leave this evergreen. It's a forever fund. It's going to constantly take investment into it. It's going to constantly invest and it might wait longer for things to come back and then when they get back, all that money just goes in the same bank account. So... Um, it's a different way of approaching capital. It's a different way to make impact. And of course, it's a lot um, a lot more amenable to healthcare where things take longer. And it's an indication that those investors, those VCs, and you know, to some extent those LPs are willing to wait a bit longer in order to make certain impact. Um, so yeah, for people looking at fund structures and people looking at investment and things like that, yeah, asking those questions around the terms of the fund itself are actually very important. You know, if, if a 10 year fund is in year four and they're looking to invest in you, well, they're hoping that you're going to exit in the next five, six years. Whereas if they're investing in year one on a 10 year fund, you've got nine. Years. So it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting way to, to think about this stuff, but yeah, that's the model. I'd love to hear from LPs who uh, invest in, um, VCs with you know with an understanding of that model, I think it'd be a very interesting kind of motivation and, and approach to look at. Um, not not even in a negative way. I they, think they are just... they are purposely invisible. They are purposely invisible. Coming from someone that uh, dipped their toe into raising a fund at one point, finding LPs at all is a challenge. Let alone speaking to them and let alone getting them on a podcast. Um, the VCs themselves are looking for the LPs. Uh, so yeah, a, a difficult group of people to find yes they are indeed well who knows um i, I know that uh, there's been a, a long been a call for pension funds to be invested in so maybe we'll mm. go and approach some of them and see how they feel <laughs> uh jessica what have you been thinking about this week uh, i know you uh, you've been um thinking even more about zoe since we since last week i have yeah it's definitely 
Well, I won't say my phone's been listening to me. I don't think it's that this time. But I do think the algorithm has been has been working. And, and actually just, like, I've been, I'm part of quite a few different WhatsApp groups that are relevant to health tech and a bit broader than that. And there's been so many conversations since we had this chat last, this time last week about Zoe and wearables and all of that kind of thing in general. And I just found it really interesting and continues to be some really mixed reviews um some people like talking about how um they've had you know better results from a solution that doesn't use the cdm for example questions about how personalized the results are for example where they've had the same results or it might be same recommendations should i say as somebody else and how there's a lot of tracking involved which i know is something that that comes up a lot in the kind of wellness space as a real negative, particularly on the mental health side, where you're doing a lot of tracking around food, tracking other metrics, other measurements and that kind of thing that can make it become quite either obsessive or so frustrating because it's such a lot of work that you kind of then just fall off the wagon because you feel like that's what's required in order to be successful and that was actually echoed by some posts that I've seen across Instagram which is my main social channel of choice and one in particular really stood out to me was from a type 1 diabetic who was talking about how CGM had been really game-changing for her and her life and all of that kind of thing, but how insulting the concept of use of a CGM for wellness is to people who are diabetic and need to be able to track their blood glucose for for their health. And that ultimately, you know, it comes down to the systemic consumerization of healthcare, um, which personally I don't necessarily see as a, I don't think it's an entirely bad thing. I don't think it's definitely not a black and white situation for sure, but very much talking about how, you know, use of those kinds of technologies and devices is detracting from people who really do need them. But also how, again, thinking about, you know, the tracking, it's another number to track track and how how is that feeding some of these orthorexic cycles that we see which is an eating disorder that's maybe not quite so obvious so I'm still I'm still sat on the fence still would be interested to try it and still you know intrigued by the whole thing um definitely not swayed one way or the other I've said before I'm definitely someone who likes to track definitely someone who can fall into the camp of too much tracking not being a good thing. And I also, I, I think there is something about the fact that, you know, optimising your health is, is a good thing, um, but creating a huge divide between people who need certain support for to basically survive versus people who are optimising, I think, it is a, it's just a really challenging debate. I don't think there are obvious answers, at least not any of the, and no conclusions that I've personally come to. Frustratingly, I see both sides still intrigued because I'm one of those innate people who are innately interested in these kinds of technologies. But my biggest conclusion is that the wearables market is so crowded and actually figuring out what's good and not so good 
is really difficult and largely falls down to the individual. There's not lots and lots of regulation. There's not lots and lots of research. There's not one organization or place where you can go where you can kind of get a consensus or compare some of these things. And so where you have lots of very similar solutions and devices, it's just, yeah, really difficult to know which way to turn or like which one is going to be right for you. And I imagine maybe the crux of it is that actually it's, it's, you know, personal, very personal to you. But where you're investing a huge amount of money, do you want to be guesswork? So I think there's a massive space for someone to come in. Maybe it's like a compare the market for wearables. I would really like that. That would um, that would help a lot. Help me figure out whether Whoop, Aura, Apple Watch, Fitbit, what's going to be right for me based on what I want and what I need. So if anyone's interested in creating that, I don't have the technical expertise. I've got the ideas. Come chat. Let's figure it out. Let's make it. Let's do it. I love that. And we should get the VCs involved as well. Yeah. Anyone who wants to stick some VC funding in, ideally Evergreen Fund, based on the education James has just given us. I don't want to be under that time limit. It's too much pressure. But um, Evergreen Fund would probably suit me pretty well. Yeah. Come say hi. <laughs> oh, simple sass. You could do that in a few years. You'd be fine. What about you, Hugh? Yeah, I haven't been thinking about a lot, actually. Uh, it's been a, uh, a really busy second week back uh, after New Year. Uh, so, you know, heavy down on delivery. But I mean, it, just listening to both of you speak for the last few minutes has actually been quite interesting. And, and I mean, Jessica, it really, well, I think definitely worthy of a discussion is that piece about sort of the tra- the, the level of tracking involved in some of these apps, the how far do you come? How do you form those habits of tracking? I mean, one of the reasons I've I guess I've never been super successful with a lot of the more of the kind of tracking heavy applications out there when it comes to health is I find it impossible to form those habits. And, you know, in the rare occasions that I do, the behavior does become obsessive to a point of uh, slightly being slightly degrading other things. I do wonder, just looking at sort of Zoe and the kind of consumerization of healthcare more generally, whether there's actually a wider discussion to be had on this podcast, whether we have it now, probably not, um, just about whether that, that sort of VC model and how we get people involved and, and how we get sort of levels of investment to see which of the apps that are the most successful, which are the ones that should be getting investment even before uh, that kind of consumer uh, compare the market piece comes in. I think there's another stage to that as well, though, that you're absolutely right that, you know, it's, for a certain type of personality, it's very easy for maybe not as even a certain type of personality, but for some people, it's very easy for these things to become obsessive. I don't think that there is loads of research out there, and I could be totally wrong. Please send me it if you if you have any, but I don't know that there's a load of research around the maybe the negative effects of using these kinds of tracking technologies. We hear all about the great things. Um, but I, I just haven't seen that much about quantifiably the, the negative side and how that could be affecting whether it's mental health or other, you know, physical consequences of, of tracking. I'm not really sure, but I think that would also help us understand what how to make these technologies even better is being able to maybe mitigate for the the downside, I guess. And understand what might be right for you based on what you know of your personality, what you want as an outcome and all of those kinds of things. And and is there another way of tracking that allows that, I don't know, doesn't 
lean so much into the obsession for people who are maybe more more likely to feel that way. I don't know, but I, I think that there's definitely a, a gap, in my understanding at least, and you know, n equals one of the drawbacks, the the downfalls of these things, which ultimately we see as you know super positive and great, and you know, it's amazing to be able to have such a or a much clearer picture of our health than we ever have been before at our fingertips. But what is the what are the drawbacks to that? What is the what is the downside and the negative? Because you know, we're talking a lot about mental health at the moment. And I can imagine that this kind of thing can absolutely be feeding into that. We've talked, I mean, we talk about this all the time, right? And like horses for courses is like always the conclusion for me, because as you know, I'm not someone who enjoys this stuff for lack of ROI. The, The amount of time and effort and energy I put in is not the benefit I get out to any of this, because I've got, I suppose, the privilege of having a relatively healthy lifestyle anyway. And so the marginal gains that I will get from tracking and any associated associated behavior change has to be squared off against the effort of building a habit or even just the time involved in the tracking system. And so I'm not receiving that ROI. But that said, if I had a chronic condition for which the differences that I could make would significantly impact my quality of life or long-term health or prognosis or any of that, it becomes a worthy investment. And that ROI thing, like obviously the, the equation starts to sit better. In terms of that, you know, healthy people, anxiety uh, as well. Like I also got a lot of that, like by wearing them, I felt watched. I felt like I had to behave. I felt like future me was going to look down on current me and all of those things. And and that created lots of those things. But to your point, Jess, about like a, a, a lack of evidence, it exists. And like the one thing that I would say, is, the one thing I picked up during, during my uh, third year of medical school and dissertation is that if you go on Google Scholar and type any opinion, you can get a load of papers that will evidence that opinion for you. So you can basically, you can basically find the evidence. But I mean, even just a quick look now, right? 2023 paper, um, where with care, a call for empirical investigations of adverse outcomes of consumer health wearables, which is Kaplan et al. And yeah, it's all talked about in there. So, and that, you know, pulls together quite a lot of papers. It's more of a, I think it's more of an exploration than, than an actual study itself, but it might be a literature review, but I need a bit of time to go through it. But I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of this stuff around and I think you're right. I think some, some sort of central trusted brand that can do a lot of this kind of almost analysis for you. You could even do a questionnaire of the type of person you are and how you react to sort of stuff and the sort of life that you have and get an honest view of like, okay, well this wearable might be right because it's very little upkeep. It's very little day-to-day stuff. And actually we can identify that you're going to get the most amount of benefit if we just, if you know, correct your sleep, sleep's the issue. This is the best one for sleep. This is the, or whatever it is. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there is, the need for a trusted body or a trusted brand, I want to say, rather than like setting up some democratic government nonsense that is going to sit and lord over everyone. I think it's more, <laughs> I think it's more like, it's more just a brand that people trust to give them honest information on this stuff. I think, yeah, I think they're probably a space. 
Well, you heard it here first. James is uh, vocally op- op- opposing the nanny state. So, uh, <laughs> as always. With that in mind, uh, yeah, so I mean, we're talking about wearables. It's, I think, you know, on to our first story then, where I think it probably makes most sense for us to start with uh, the EV ring uh, or an article in ZDNet. This uh, women's health ring that uses AI to analyze menstruation and sleep is now available. Uh, so first announced at CES 2023, um, the EV ring is a ring from Mavana Health, uh, which has been designed with the mission of making health data more accessible. It uh, started shipping this January, and it's just been uh, recognised with the 2024 CES Innovation Honoree Award. I, don't, I must say I don't keep up with consumer trends, so I have no idea whether this is a glamorous award or just a very nice thing that they uh, give out at CES. But, yeah, there's a lot uh, There's a lot in here. Uh, essentially, the EV ring, uh, and it's, it's very uh, important to focus, available in sizes to, sizes 5 to 12, uses AI to divulge correlations across menstrual health, mood, energy, sleep, and activity from data that either women log on the EV app or the ring itself tracks. Um, so we've been talking about tracking just over the last few minutes, but... Uh, it's this one's an interesting one because the focus seems to be on the insights that this this ring provides. I wonder, Jess, you've you've had an opportunity to have a, a little look at this story. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I guess this like links really heavily to what I was just saying. And my first thought when I looked at this was, oh god, another ring, and not because I think it's a bad thing, because I was like, how is this different from anything else that we've seen? And if I look down the side panel of this article there of course like you know when you look at news articles online it will present you with related articles that are similar to what you're reading but that i mean there's three here that are one ring one app amazefit's new smart ring integrates sleep and fitness data the best smart rings you can buy the best fitness rings to kickstart your 2024 wellness goals i mean to be fair the bottom two both have images of the aura ring it's so difficult, like, which to sort the wheat from the chaff. And I think what's interesting about this, in all fairness, is that this one is specifically for women's health. And I've seen a couple that are for women's health, and they're all very early stage. This one is specifically for women's health. As you said, it's analysing menstrual and sleep data. It's providing lots of different biomarkers around women's health, um, or should I say digital biomarkers. And it's also doing things like it's connecting up um, reported like mood with menstrual cycle and other things which in fairness you know I have the flow app that also does something similar but that's obviously largely self-reported and so I think for this it would be interesting if you were looking for something very specific around I guess a more precision way of maybe tracking your cycle and some of the symptoms that you're experiencing throughout your cycle, whether that was for fertility or you maybe have suspected endometriosis or managing PCOS or something like that. And I think this could potentially be good for that. But the other issue I think is that they are all pretty early. And so understanding the the accuracy is, is a difficult thing. So an example of this is that I'm also really intrigued by the Aura Ring. I think I mentioned I have a couple of friends who have used it. They rave about it. They've used it in terms of um, as part of their fertility journey um, because it then linked to natural cycles or something like that. And it was, you know, it was easier than sticking a thermometer in their mouth and, or, you know, 
checking the temperature that way, it was more automatic, et cetera, et cetera. And they didn't have to remember to do it. And it gave really good sleep insights, but the step tracking was off and some of the activity data was off. And then I saw somebody else on Instagram who was saying the same kinds of things. And so it seems that we have lots of these devices that have, they present themselves as a catch-all solution that does lots of different things, but the reality is they maybe do three things really well. And the accuracy is maybe questionable, but there is no benchmark about like, how do you actually, like what is accurate? You know, you can walk on a treadmill and you'll get given maybe number of steps or distance or calories burned. That's not accurate. Apparently an Apple Watch isn't accurate. So what is accurate and how do you calculate that? And if it's not accurate, why are you using it? And, you know, you can probably gain insights from seeing patterns and that kind of thing. I see that that could be valuable, but just feels like a minefield. And every time I think, oh, you know, maybe I will try X, then I see something like something new come along, like Evie. And I think then that throws me and I think, well, maybe that would be better. Maybe I should try that. It's confusing. And I live and breathe this stuff. I work in this space. And I I think I'm pretty informed to be able to make a good decision. The reality is probably whatever you choose would help in some way. And I do think it's really exciting. Uh, you know, I'm not writing this off at all. I think, you know, it's cool that there is something that is focused on women's physiology, women's experience of health, et cetera, et cetera. But I also quite like that the design is slightly different to most of the other rings that I've seen. So that's one thing that has stood out to me, but yeah, I, uh, it's such a crowded space. We need somewhere to basically do the hard work for us and figure out what is going to work for me as an individual and in terms of functionality, what what is the high quality, what is going to give you the high quality results, the accurate results and I guess, yeah, just um, transparency in, in how that accuracy is calculated, I suppose. I think it's interesting. I think it's a cool device, but it is another tracking ring. It is another tracking device. Well, it's funny, since... Uh... Since I looked up that that paper, I've had a, had a little glance of it. Wear with care: a call for empirical investigations of adverse outcomes of consumer health wearables. Cat uh, Planetel, twenty twenty three. They talk about trust in here actually, and there's a there's an interesting concept that. By the way, this is not actually this article or this 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 investigation. This what would you call it, literature review, or whatever, isn't actually against wearables. But what they're they're just highlighting some areas that do perhaps need looking at, and they they pull out trust very specifically here. And and what they're basically saying in this is that by the time something hits market, there is just a general trust with the public that this information that they're getting is accurate. And actually, when you go one stage further than that and one stage removed from that, then the insights that are then generated and then to go again, the behaviours that are then suggested that to go again, you will then take up. There's a big sort of Chinese whispers element there of essentially trusting the base truth of is the information accurate? And if the information's accurate, is the system that we put that information, i.e. normal values and all the rest of it, is that accurate for me? And this sort of, I suppose, ruse of personalization and how personalized is it really? And all of that information, like, it's funny. I thought the other day, right? I'm going to go on a tangent here. I thought the other day, 
when Jess, there was some uh, like, like fingerprint blood test stuff. I think it was your fertility test or something like that. Do you know what it was? It was the folate B12. The folate B12 number that came back that was high. And we were talking, I'm just giving away your medical information here, but like slightly high out of normal range, like nothing major, like like whatever, just slightly high B12. It was slightly high. And, you know, we take certain things like folate B12 spray being one of them, like supplement, like blah, blah. And I was like, I wonder like those normal ranges, where did those normal ranges come from? Those normal ranges will have come from a study done decades ago, probably, uh, or a group of studies or a systematic review or, or whatever, right? Meta-analysis. But those normal ranges are, are just assumed normal. There's, there's no, that, that hasn't been sent from a higher power of like, that is definitely normal range for all humans. And that is definitely normal range for you. It's very difficult to know, like, okay, it came up as slightly high, but is that slightly high? And I don't know, there's, as I say, there's a, there's an element of trust with the healthcare system. We're seeing this with huge amounts in AI and all the rest of it, that we do just trust historically what the doctor has said, what the clinicians have said, and we've trusted that. We then trust things like diagnostics and normal ranges. We are developing very quickly a trust with AI tools and things like that. And where it comes to wearables to bring this round, I think where they are at market en masse, I think there are a lot of assumptions that are taken as facts. And that's what I worry about with wearables a little bit. And perhaps the negative side of that isn't actually that great. Perhaps it just creates positive, healthy behaviors in slightly more volume than perhaps they're needed or, or, you know, or all the rest of it. I don't know how that manifests, but I think, yeah, the baseline level of trust is an interesting one. And where it comes to things like this, where it comes to things like the microbiome, like with Zoe and all the rest of it, like how much do we really know? You've done a, you've done a test there and like, I'm interested in that sort of evidence-based facts that go all the way from recording that information and how accurate the information is to the system that information is put in to then generating the results and then the insights afterwards. I wonder how much of that will look exactly the same in the next 10, 20 years. And I think the the conviction with which a lot of these insights are delivered to the consumer as definitive, factual this is what you should do, perhaps clouded in a bit of language that gets them off from a legal perspective. I, I don't know. I just suspect that we're perhaps acting with a bit more conviction than the future us will look back on and think that was a good idea. I, I, I don't know. It's just a few thoughts. One thing that's also made me think about is like, obviously wearables, digital biomarkers, even, you know, much easier access to proper biomarkers it makes me wonder obviously now we have such a much clearer picture of our health which i think is amazing and i said that i think it's super helpful it makes me think are we becoming desensitized to our own bodies though because there is also something about checking in with yourself and how you're feeling and you know sometimes and i i guess this is um you know quite specific to often happens with women there's something that just does feels off with maybe it's your period maybe it's your your cycle in general it just feels off 
and you go and get a blood test, you go and get a blood profile done and everything comes back normal, but it just doesn't feel quite right. And don't get me wrong, obviously not something not feeling quite right doesn't give you an answer, but you know, your step tracker could tell you that you've not done enough steps, but actually you might feel really tired or your legs are aching or something like that, but actually do you override the feeling in yourself with the number that you're seeing? I don't know. I just think that there's there's something about becoming desensitized to how you feel and the things you observe in your own body, which are also really critically important. And I think it links to trust, as you were saying, because we should be able to trust ourselves in how we're feeling the things we notice and observe about ourselves. And I think we should be able to trust the data too. But I, I, I just wonder whether in an age where you can see your health on a dashboard of an app, that in some ways is uh, yeah de-skilling us in terms of what we understand of how we present with our own health. I can perhaps give give both sides the argument here because I'm someone that definitely if I'm tired I'll just sleep more if I wake up and I'm tired it's probably because I didn't sleep very well and I'm aware of that I went to bed a bit late it's it's pretty clear I don't need a graph to tell me the quality of my sleep that's very very personal to me but I think it probably comes like that this is probably an argument again around true personalization and normal values and it's like what is the normal range of heart rate Normal heart rate is, you know, they might say between 60 and 80 beats a minute. They might say around about 72 beats a minute. They might say this, might say that. But the normal heart rate of a cross-country skier versus the normal heart rate of a sedentary, obese, chronically dehydrated person is not the same as a cross-country skier. And actually, you know, getting certain tests, I mean, this is an extreme argument, but getting certain tests done, that's going to be a wildly different conclusion as to how you know, healthy someone is, like an infection is going to show itself in that latter person. Tachycardia, fast heart rate, is going to really show itself. But if a cross-country skier goes and gets baseline level of OBS done, and it's like, oh, your heart rate's 68, like you're actually quite healthy and you're quite fine. Actually, that's really tachycardic for someone that's got a baseline heart rate of 40 or something. Like they're actually showing signs of tachycardia, which could be infection, it could be dehydration, it could be all different things. And so... Yeah, I wonder if the technologists might argue for that. Well, actually, true personalization actually does remove that need to check in with yourself because the the numbers, if we if we make the assumption that you can know everything, then actually in a more sort of deterministic model and arguably the quest for digital biomarkers and all the biomarkers is essentially an argument for that determinism of if we know everything, then we can predict everything and we can solve everything, then actually perhaps we just haven't discovered the right biomarkers yet. Perhaps there is a world where you don't need to check in with yourself in inverted commas, but I, I don't know what the, perhaps that argument would be. I'm going to step in and bring this sort of neatly back to the, the EV ring story, actually, because there's, it taps in nicely to what we've just been discussing. And uh, th this line from the article, such correlations that the EV AI engine can draw are, we've noticed your mood improves when you get a thousand more steps than your average. Your sleep mm. may be interrupted during this phase of your menstrual cycle due to a dip in progesterone. Or you've reported experiencing less sleep for the second month in a row. Mm. I do wonder whether we are relying on things that are just that little bit early. The, the insights that are being drawn are in some ways a bit basic. It, it is, as you said, Jessica, stepping out of checking in with yourself and being relying on the technology to sort of tell you 
things that almost are quite obvious. I I know that my mental health and you know mood is significantly better when I get exercise, and I, I would imagine that's probably the case for most people. So, are the insights? valuable enough at this point in the technology i'm not talking about the ev ring here i'm talking about wearables generally going full circle here horses for courses yes they are valuable to some people mm. fact yes they absolutely are and for some people they already know it but actually that gives them the nudge to go and do something because it's now documented and that's what motivates mm. them to make a change all of this stuff is essentially trying to create better behaviors amongst people and I think, you know, the gold standard would be, you know, an, an accountability human that is with you all the time <laughs> that, that literally just serves as accountability. And these things are just trying to get as close as possible to that and trying to, you know, increase intuition and all the rest of it and learn as much as they can about you in order to give you the right information. I think it's a quest for that. I think we're just trying to replace what would be the perfect one-to-one -one human interactions all the time by technologies and I, th I think yeah horses for courses mate so our final story comes to us from femtech insider qvin's qpad makes history with first fda pr approval for menstrual blood health testing jessica this is one i know that you've been quite keen to talk about can i hand over to you for uh, to run us through it of course with pleasure so first things first Spelt Kvin, pronounced Quinn, which is derived from the Danish word for woman, which I won't try to pronounce, but it's something between the two. And basically, I mean, this story has blown up over my LinkedIn this week. And, uh, you know, I know there are, there are a lot of people who are really excited about it and I count myself among them. But essentially what Quinn have done is created a menstrual pad, which can then be used to for testing different biomarkers. In this instance, it has actually received FDA approval for testing one of the biomarkers, and that is the HbA1c. So I did a little bit of digging to understand a little bit more about how it works, what they're doing, and all of that kind of thing. And one thing that I got really excited about, not least that it is a women's health product that is FDA cleared, which is huge news like it is massive and I think sets a really exciting precedent for the rest of the year and the future for other similar products in this space but it is a biomarker test admittedly only testing one thing for the moment but compared to lots of other products that do similar things in the space it's actually relatively accessible and from a price point perspective it's you know consumer product at this stage um, but it is only $49 which is quite significantly lower than many many other biomarker tests lab tests that um, are on the market and whilst it's been FDA approved for the HbA1c they have got some published papers across a um, variety of different areas ranging from cervical cancer screening, glycemic control monitoring, serum versus menstrual blood for diagnostic purposes, inflammatory profile, uh, reproductive hormones. So there's lots that seems to be in the pipeline. Um, what I will say is having looked at the papers, 
The study samples are relatively small. Um, I think the largest sample they had was about 172 people. However, all of them come with really positive conclusions that suggest that actually these different types of screening are possible using menstrual blood, but ultimately also concluding that more research needs to be done with a much larger sample size. And I think something like, well, all of this stuff, but, you know, cervical cancer screening, you know, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't actually have to do anything different. And, you know, James mentioned earlier, you know, having done the fertility test, that's still a finger prick, which, you know, largely fine, unless you're someone like me, who's a bit squeamish, doesn't like blood. But easier than a than um you know a blood test. It's painless. It's easy. You know you're already menstruating anyway. It's making use of that. Um, I think you know pulls down so many barriers for people who would be less inclined to explore this stuff. And and these are all areas that lots of people could benefit from. Or you know understanding reproductive hormones and that kind of thing for people who are you know suspected endometriosis or PCOS and that kind of thing I think so helpful and also I think you know clearly this is not like a CGM where you have that continuous blood glucose monitoring but where it's a reduced a lower price point like that I guess it would encourage people to be able to check more frequently those kinds of things um and so, you know, speaking from personal experience, who, as someone who was diagnosed with PCOS several years ago, my most recent um, panel has shown that I actually don't have PCOS anymore. And I didn't know that. And that's exciting. And I think, you know, there is sometimes, you know, four things that maybe can be reversed or can be improved. Knowing that actually the intervention that you've done is making a difference is, you know, super encouraging and motivating or if it's not, then it gives you the opportunity to maybe to change something. And I think, you know, this is links really well to what we're talking about with wearables. Um, you know, it's amazing to be able to have that personalized insight into your health in this space in particular, which has just stayed behind this curtain, is remained elusive to most women, I would say, in truly understanding their body in this in this way. Um one thing that really stuck out to me, which is not related to technology necessarily, is there's a stat on their website that says 1.8 billion people go through menstruation at any given time or any given month, should I say. That number really surprised me because there's, what, nearly 8 billion people in the world, 50% of them are women. Less than 50% of them are menstruating. I appreciate, obviously, you know, it's in kind of the, the mid part of your life where you would be, but... You, I guess it feels like it goes on for a huge part of your life. It doesn't really, but I would have just expected that number to be way higher. And, you know, that probably speaks to my naivety, but I just, that really caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting that. I'm sure it also speaks to, you know, an aging population and all of that kind of thing, but I thought it would be higher. So overall, I think it's really exciting. I think, you know, this marker in the sand of FDA approval is a huge milestone um, and I think really sets a precedent and the agenda for what we can expect um, for women's health in the months and years to come. Yeah, I agree. It's convenient. It's clearly, it does what it says on the tin. It's got the FDA approval. And I think, I guess one of the, the things I like most about this is that the, some of the, con the conditions that they mention 
are things like fertility issues, endometriosis, things that I suppose historically and even currently are difficult to diagnose. They're difficult to pick up. They're surrounded by by stigma and, and endometriosis particularly. It's a it's a really tough diagnosis. The, the diagnostic odyssey for people with endometriosis can be can be really horrible. And actually, you know, these types of conditions finding a way to make the the diagnostic element and part of the journey easier can only be a good thing it talks about as well diabetes and measuring average blood sugar levels over three months and things like that i think yeah and to your point jess you know removing an invasive test um i think benefits all around i think why the heck not sort of thing we should be seeing Thanks both. That's been a really enjoyable episode. This was the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, uh, analysing the week's news and views, so you don't have to. Uh, you can read the, all the stories and get some of the best events, um, pods and jobs in health tech by going to the website at healthtechpigeon.com. Speaking of events, there is one event which you need to get your skates on for. We have our very first health tech podcast live coming up on the 29th of february and we have two really 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 incredible guests that i am so excited about who are going to be coming to the stage at the bfi the british film institute i am super super chuffed with this venue it's going to be so cool and you need to be there so basically as he says, go check out the website. You will find all the details, all the ticket information. Tickets are super limited. So make sure you get in and get your ticket ASAP because I can assure you as soon as we announce the guests, those tickets are going to be gone. We would love to see you there. There's going to be some great goodie bags, great people as always. And of course, we will be having drinks and networking afterwards at the BFI bar. So see you there. And for those of you who can't make it, the Health Tech Vision podcast will be back next week and every week after that. So we'll see you all next week. Uh, Have a great one.